Rennie Edo Lodge has written for the New York Times, The Guardian, The Independent, BuzzFeed. She contributed to The Good Immigrant, an anthology edited by Mikesh Shukla, and hosts the podcast About Race, featuring key voices from anti-racist activism. We're here today at the Blue Met Literary Festival in Montreal to talk about her bestseller, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thanks for having me. Perhaps uh, we could, I can hit you with some uh, requests for definitions. Okay. Divide and rule. Divide and rule. In the context of the book, really, it's a strategy to keep people who don't have much fighting each other rather than looking at the people who have a lot. A colonial strategy. What about color blindness? Uh, well, I think color blindness in the context of the book, you know, what I try to say is um, pretending not to see race socially. That's what color blindness is pretending not to see race socially, avoiding looking at how it functions socially when it comes to inequality. Structural racism. So, in the book I cite a lot of data that really points to drastic inequalities in, in quite a few, like, I guess, public institutions, employment, housing, healthcare, higher education, and education in general, and, and I call those drastic racial inequalities structural racism. It's uh, more subtle than abuse in the street. Yes, like not one-off. It's not a one-off incident. Indeed, it's not an isolated incident, yeah. And it's a collective mindset, a world you live in, the way in which you experience your environment. Yeah, but also the way that uh, power is organised, I suppose. And it gets in the way of people's life chances. Particularly when it comes to some of the stats around education. There was a study that I cited in the book um, from the Department for Education in the UK that showed that 11-year-olds who were doing their exams in the hope of getting into secondary school, black 11-year-olds were more likely to be marked down by their own teachers, and it was something that was rectified when somebody who didn't teach them marked their papers. And, you know, that's an example of structural racism that could affect whether what kind of secondary school that a child goes to, which will in turn affect what kind of university that person might be able to access which might in, in turn affect the kind of job that they go on to get, which would affect their earnings, their class, the access to resources, etc., etc. So, You position your book as a tool. You provide historical knowledge, political backdrop. How can that be used as a tool? Well, I, I think for readers, many of whom know their own personal experience but feel somewhat isolated when it comes to articulating it. I, I want the book to be able to back them up with data and evidence and, mm -hmm. and language that they can use to speak about not only what they are personally experiencing but also um, the world at large and the inequality at hand. Yeah, I, I brought this up in, in a session that you were speaking at yesterday. And for me, one of the most powerful tools is statistics. Statistics that prove that racism is, uh, is 
is present. Uh, and there was a, uh, a study that was done of black versus white applicants for mortgages in the United States. And it's clearly evident that... Uh, and so the, this particular uh, uh, program took that data to the banks and confronted the banks. It seems to me that that's a really powerful tool because banks don't want to be embarrassed like that in public. Mm, definitely. A lot of people expected me to write a book that was going to be focused on my personal experience. Um, but I, I come from a background of journalism and worked in a think tank for a short amount of time, found myself trawling through reports. And I think for those of us who are invested in equality, it's important to skill up. You can't just be invested in equality. You have to be invested. You have to have the skills to be able to analyse it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when it comes to narratives of personal experience, then I wouldn't ever you know, seek to do down somebody who situates their opposition in that space it can be easily dismissed because it's just one person's subjective experience yep. and anecdotal and mm-hmm. yeah. for me it's really important that whatever i say about my personal experience is backed up by the large-scale evidence and there is so much evidence yeah um and so much data out there and yet you you talk about the fact that uh, that much of it is being suppressed um, yeah, you know, I'm, like, for, for example, the relationship between uh, blacks and police. Mm. I mean, it's so strange because when I was doing that research, you know, a lot of that stuff happened less than three decades, decades ago in, in Britain. And it wasn't like it wasn't common knowledge then, but it just didn't get solidified into the canon of what the country thinks of itself today, you know. Mm. Um, and I remember when I was in um, the British Library and the Black Cultural Archives in, in South London in Brixton gathering that data a lot of it was on you know mainstream news at the time mm-hmm. but it had all sort of been just I don't really know it just wasn't part of the country's understanding of itself and young people didn't know that these things had happened and why is that well I think there's a couple of reasons one is trauma from the people who went through it um, the older generation who lived through it who were traumatized by that treatment and didn't want to speak of it again because you know it's a psychological thing sometimes you go through something so tough so difficult that you just don't want to address it and actually post book publication there were some people who had gone through horrific things horrific racism in the last few decades in Britain who said to me why are you bringing this up well because they think things are okay now no rather that they just didn't want to have to face that pain you know so I think there's that um And then I also think that there is just like the, in terms of knowledge production, so outside of the community who face that, uh, that like discrimination, the people who essentially like produce and reproduce knowledge, Mm. um, just not very diverse at all. Are you talking about journalists? Yeah, journalists. Academics? Academics, authors, um, you know, like you could fit all of the black women academics in Britain into one vehicle. That's how few that there are. Yeah. and so there just weren't m- enough to be able to make some of those stories that I talk about in the book front and center. Um, and in their research, I guess. Right? Yeah, in their yeah. research or like in the ways, you know, like the, the country thinks about itself. And that's not to say that coverage hadn't happened. So, for example, you know, I write about the Bristol bus boycott in the book and in Bristol, you know, it's a widely understood story you know that has been 
you know, spoken about at schools and um, I want I actually went to go and see the instigator of the Bristol bus boycott speak in Bristol about five years ago, you know. Mm. He's still doing the rounds. Um, at least he was then. That story hadn't disseminated outside of that local community, which is so strange to me that, you know, Paul Stevenson was doing that work around the same time that Martin Luther King Jr. was doing his work in um, in the States. And yet MLK Jr.'s story was national, mm-hmm. but Paul Stevenson's story was local. Um, and I think that that really speaks to a failure, I think, of the British curriculum to own those stories mm. as our own. You cite some historical facts, and uh, the one that, that blew me away was that there were 11 million black Africans that were shipped over to the States to work on cotton farms and such. That's, that's a huge number. Mm. I think another number that people sort of reckon with after they read the book is that slavery as an institution lasted for longer than it's been abolished you know (laughs) like Mm -hmm. it's sometimes it's hard to be able to conceptualize numbers but when we think about the ways in which people talk about slavery now like oh it's so long ago Mm. the fact that it lasted for longer than it's been abolished you're like wow that really i can't quite believe that we as a society have shifted so dramatically um considering that it's a drop in the uh, ocean of history. I kind of feel like my job as a writer is to try to illustrate those numbers, you know. Numbers can be cold and, um, and distant and abstract, and it's hard to be able to... Sometimes it's hard to grasp what the reality of that, those numbers actually mean. Well, you illustrate it, or, or uh, you use the term black cattle, which, again, that's a very powerful... Uh, image and uh, it put, and I don't know how, if this is offensive or not for me to say it but it puts me in the mind of how humans are currently treating animals mm. now, now that the animal rights movement is it seems to me that's going to be the next big thing maybe in 50 years or something I mean I don't think that's offensive actually I'm familiar with black vegan animal rights writers and thinkers there's a writer named Afco she's um african-american who draws those parallels because you know she wrote a a piece that i came across on the internet years ago called notes from the like human animal border she makes the argument i think quite convincingly because that quote that you used in the book that that you just used black cattle that's not my words that's no slave the words of a slave that's what they were calling Mm -hmm. that's what slave traders were calling their their product and what af I think argues incredibly convincingly is that, you know, for those of us who've been racialized, um, we were designated as less than human. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah. And that's and how you were that, treated. Yeah. That, that humanity was built, the concept of humanity. And, you know, you can look at things like race science, eugenics was built off a white male ideal. And that, well, what you say is to be white is to be human, universal. I only know this because I'm not one. Indeed. Well, I think, you know, going back to Af's work, which has been uh, a great source of inspiration um, for me, she, she makes the argument uh, really well that, that the exploitation of, of humans designated less than human by people who designate themselves superior 
mm. it's exactly the same lines as how you know we treat animals um i think that there are some vegan activists who can make that argument in a very like crass and offensive way but i don't think that's what af is doing she's making an argument about the use of other living beings one of the things that uh, that really pisses me off is when someone comes across as superior and and uh, tries to make me feel stupid so I, I can only imagine how difficult it must be to sort of live with a whole white race. You know, maybe you think that that's what they think. Is, is that, no. Does that make sense? It does make sense. but um... and, and as I say, the thing, that's one of the things that, that in my life pisses me off the most. So again, if, it, if, if you're walking around and you have to kind of think, they're all thinking that I'm stupid, that must be, uh, you must be angry a lot of the time. Well, I must say that's not what I think. Okay. I don't like to make assumptions about what anybody thinks about me. Right. Um, uh, I'm too busy thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner that evening, you know. <laughs> so, um, But I, again, you talk about a collective mindset. Oh, yeah, and... absolutely. But I think that, like, in terms of, like, my one-on-one -on -one interactions with people, um, I don't, like, allow that to be the front and center of my mind because, you know, I think life would be difficult to live if that was the case. But I am used to being underestimated, I think. Mm -hmm. I am used to being underestimated. That can be actually a, a positive in, yeah, in I think some, so. some ways. I think so, you know. I sometimes think about when I started this book and when it, came, when it was first published, uh, a lot of people said to me, even friends, oh, I didn't expect it to be this well-researched. I didn't expect it to be this. I didn't expect mm. it to be, to be that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I am quite used to being underestimated, I think, um, which... I don't really find offensive. It just gives me more leeway to like shock people <laughs> in, in terms of like in, in terms of the, the the quality and strength of the work, I suppose. But you know, everyday people, I don't move around the world thinking that people are discriminating against me. I mean, I recognise it when it happens more directly, but it's not something that I anticipate because I think if I did, life would just be very difficult for me to navigate. And you know, I have to look after my sanity and mental health. You know. Yeah. The, the publishing industry is pretty white. Yeah, it's very much so, yeah. I mean, I feel I lucked out with, you know, Bloomsbury in, in Britain. I lucked out. Uh, I found myself working with a brilliant editor and a, a whole team at Bloomsbury who were hugely, like, enthusiastic about um, the work that I was doing and really got behind it. Mm -hmm. um, mm. But they're all white, well, or mostly. I, Mostly with the exception of um, one of the editors I worked with, Angelique. Um, she's not white. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that, you know, I remember one of the members of staff at Bloomsbury when I first went in for a meeting with them said was like, well, you know, what do you think about us all around the table? There was a few of them, you know, we're all white. And I said, yeah, but this is the rule, not the exception, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so I am... Cognizant is that a word of? It's a good one, yeah. Of the uh, environment that I was publishing the book in, and and I was happy to work with a publisher who didn't seek to compromise or you know water down any of the work that I was 
that I was trying to do and, and sought only to facilitate mm. the message and get it out as in the, in the uh, sharpest way possible. You do raise the topic of quotas in, in the book. Mm. Uh, what do you think about those? Well, I mean, you know, if you, when you read the book, you see that, like, I'm... I don't really come down hard for them, but I no. do, um, like, explain... Well, there was a situation yeah. in, this, in the NFL... Yeah, yeah. Uh, ...where, uh, you know, the fact that so many of the players are black and so few of the managers are, and the coaches are, are, are black. And there was a, the Rooney rule, was it? The Rooney rule, yes, yes. Which... Uh, which basically just said, if you're going to hire someone, make sure you interview at least one black mm -hmm. uh, candidate, right? Well, this is the thing. I think, like, I'm not, like, hugely pro-quota. I mean, if push comes to shove, I'll say, yes, I'm pro-quota. But I'm mm. not going out organizing and campaigning for them. But what I'm really anti is the opposition to quotas <laughs> because I feel... And that's what I tried to do in the book was really, like, debunk and challenge all of the opposition to quotas because it often comes from a pretty, like racist place you know mm. claiming that people who aren't white aren't even qualified mm. you know mm. or that in all circumstances if it goes if somebody who's hired who isn't white then they're not going to have the qualifications and they're just going to be some random person you know so and I, it's giving an unfair advantage too that's the other argument i guess yeah and, and what i tried to the case i tried to make in the book is that an unfair advantage already exists in the yeah. homogeneity of the, the yeah. people who already occupy the position yeah so, and you're just trying to balance things yeah exactly yeah. level the playing field yeah. now i'm not a politician so i'm never going to say oh well i think that quotas should look like this in this form and blah 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 and i'm not going to say that no even though i'm often pushed <laughs> to sim simply because of the book that i've written but yeah uh, I personally don't have a massive problem with them. Okay. I'm going to uh, get personal here and talk about Twitter. Okay, go ahead. And we'll see what comes of that. This was about a year ago. There was a tweet that came out that said, and I know that he's a poet, white poet, and it said something like, listen up, white, whiteies. Uh, when a black woman is speaking about her experience of racism, don't chime in with your own experiences with discrimination. They aren't, and then the, the implication was they're not as important or as painful, and they don't compare. Who said that? Uh, this is just someone on Twitter, a, oh, wow. a, a white poet. And I didn't like being lectured like that, so I said, I responded with, they're just trying to be empathetic, number one. And number two, uh, people who've suffered with mental health, there's a stigma that they have to deal with, which is very painful, and it's discrimination. And people who have disabilities have great challenges and deal with discrimination all the time. And then what happened is I got, what's the term when you get, Oh, people call Swarm. it like a pylon. A pylon. Yeah. And some of, a couple of people called uh, me a piece of shit, a racist. You know, maybe I was stirring it up just a tiny little bit, but and largely because another white guy had, I thought, overstepped himself. I just, uh, I, as I say, the whole thing just sort of bugged me, and I and I just wonder, is it? If someone tries to bring up 
other kinds of discrimination while you're talking about racism. Does that annoy you? Does that undermine? How, what, how do you feel about that? Well, I think, first off, um, Twitter's just a really bad place to have political conversations. <laughs> I know I tried for like six years and then stopped and right. put all the, the work that I was trying to do online into a book instead because I think, you know, 140 or 280 characters, it's not enough to, to make a full case. Um, the anecdote reminds me of... Um, I once got in trouble in a, at a family function because, you know, a relative had, like, who was much older, he'd really hurt his knee and he was limping or walk, walking on crutches or something, and he tried to talk to me about it, and I started responding, saying, oh, yeah, that's like when I sprained my ankle, and I got a blowback from family members who said, you know, you weren't really listening to his pain or really, mm-hmm. like... Um, appreciating that his pet while you also had been in pain at that time you sprained your ankle and And you're just trying to empathize i would imagine i i'd sprayed my ankle like both ankles like numerous times as a child yeah and i sort of felt quite like put out by that but then you know some years later many years later i was like okay what he was dealing with was different and i and for him i think the best thing at that time would have been for me to say I'm, you know, I'm really sorry, or listened and, um, and asked what can I do to help him move around the house with crutches a little bit more. Mm-hmm. All of that to say that um, it, it taught me that listening can also be empathy, you know? Mm-hmm. Listening can be a, a form of, of empathy. Um, Without and, trying to chime in to, yeah. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and it was a harsh lesson to, to learn, you know, because I'm... I've all, I'm always keen to talk about the times when I, I've sprained my ankles and sometimes both at one time. Uh, it's, a, it's a silly anecdote, I suppose, but... Yeah, how does I'm, that, how does it, with racism, how does that work for you? If, if you're bringing up a, an example or a, of how discrimination affected your life and then someone says, who's not black, but brings up their example, like, does that, how does that come down with you? I suppose the, the my question is the intent. It's uh, is it to suggest that um, other people have struggles too? Because I think the person who's speaking about racism isn't implying that other people don't have struggles. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people just want to to vent or to you know just be heard and believed. And I think sometimes it can be received as when people say, "Oh yeah," and there's other struggles too. It can be received as. Yeah. Oh, you're not being believed, or this isn't valid. Or you're putting down my struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I come from a background of feminist activism too, and you know, when women talk about domestic violence, sometimes men will chime in and be like, "Yeah, men, uh, you know, get domestic violence too." And I started to wonder. I said, I thought, are you having this conversation about domestic violence against men independently of this conversation about domestic violence against women or is it always just in opposition to right you know yeah because <laughs> if it's independently of and you're doing your advocacy and stuff and then that's great but if it's always in opposition to then i'm a bit like i do is this something you care about or is it not i don't know anyway right but yeah i mean people want to be heard and believed and listened to and i i've had to do an awful lot of humbling myself whilst doing this work i think particularly with um people who are transgender and and actually specifically people who are disabled oh the humbling that I've that I've done with myself when it comes to learning from disability activists has been shocking it's been you know I talk about structural barriers in 
in um, my book, but mm. it's is there literal. anything more stru- literal, structural yeah. than the physical makeup of a building? You yeah. know, like yes. <laughs> I, I've learned so much. I've learned so much. It's been so humbling, and and uh, it's required me to just be quiet and listen. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Just one more quick Twitter example, and it was connected to this, and it was about empathy, and the topic of books came up, which is the topic of our podcast, of course. And I cited the fact that when I was 13 or 14, I read a book called Black Like Me, which is written by a a white guy, John Howard Griffin, who dyed his skin really dark black. Oh yeah, I've heard of this book. Yeah, it, it to me that for me it was one of the most moving, influential books I'd ever ever read. It just and the fact that this man now there's rumors that he died of cancer oh, as a result of, but I don't think that's the case. But anyway, again, I mentioned this on Twitter, and um, my choice of book was derided because it was a white guy appropriating black experience and I was told to read James Baldwin and you know black black writers if that's what I wanted to get and as I say that also sort of it's just this is a white person trying to empathize and yet he's criticized for doing that and I'm criticized for I mean I've read Baldwin I was gonna I've got the book here with me right now but I just wonder your reaction to that that whole thing well you know again I'm not I, I'm not watching each, every Twitter yeah. argument that you have, <laughs> so I can't speak to the specifics. But yeah. I did come. I came across that book actually in an Airbnb in Sydney, in Australia, and I thought, what a wacky idea! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I wondered what the publishing landscape was at the time. That Sixty-one, it was published. I see. I was like, oh, were they really? This is so like what first a commitment to the cause to give yourself cancer <laughs> in order to work out how, the kind of discrimination that black people face. <laughs> but, you know, he worked in anti-racism his whole life. You know, he was very, very serious about it. Mm. I, I, I had no doubt about it to go and dye your skin like that. Yeah. I could also imagine, like, it wouldn't fly today. I think a lot of people would find it very offensive. Um, I mean, if the book worked as an empathy vehicle for you, then... In my opinion, that's a good thing. Um, that's what I thought. I mean, I think as long as you're also reading black writers and not just white people who died yeah. themselves black, then, right. you know. And I'm actually, like, curious although, to read it, although I don't know if I should because I feel that the concept is just a little bit too strange for me, a, a little bit too strange. Um, I mean, even just, like, conjuring the image in my head, like... Yeah, yeah. He must have looked so weird. He he must have. <laughs> but no, I think he really did look like a black person, though. It wasn't, you know, I guess his features... What did he die himself? What died it? I need to... I didn't even know what it. he used. Yeah, like, how did he do it? But there is a there is a power question here, and the, and the question is, like, at the time that he was able to... that he was dying himself black and, and getting this publishing deal and stuff and... Did black writers who were attempting to write about the black experience have the same access to, to publication yes. as he yeah. did at the time? You know, Interesting. Because yeah. I could see, I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but um, if it would have been harder for a black writer to speak about their, to write about their experiences in, in America at the time than it was for a white man to die himself black and write about, about the experience, then, that, then that's a problem. Yeah. 
you uh, referenced the fact that not much changed between the Brixton riots in 85 and then the riots in 2011, and you suggest that the underlying problems need to be tackled. So what are those? I think real antagonism between young black people in particular and the police, mm -hmm. which still exists, you know. Oh, I don't know if you've been paying attention to some of the headlines coming out of the UK at the moment, but there's real problems with with young, I'm not going to say just young black people, I'd say young poor people who are all tend to be racialized, black, white, Asian, and um, young youth violence. Well, I think one of the most troubling things about youth violence and kids stabbing each other and beating each other up and gangs and stuff is um, that they feel that they have to essentially like sort out their own disputes amongst each other because they don't feel they can trust the police. Mm -hmm. If their life is in danger, they don't feel they can trust the police. Yeah. And the police... That's like the rule of law. It's like that's how important it is to, to uh, society to run efficiently and, and well. The, and, and if you've lost faith in that... Indeed. I think the police don't ask themselves questions about why these young people do not trust them enough mm -hmm. to take their conflicts and disputes to the police rather than sorting it out amongst themselves. And the police don't ask themselves that. Instead, they just criminalise them more and more and come up with uh, concepts like joint, joint enterprise, which essentially is a legal tool that means that people who are even associated with somebody who does a crime can also go down for it, which then in turn fuels the distrust, yeah. which then in turn leads those kids to keep sorting out conflicts and disputes between themselves. So that it's a big problem. Um, mm. There is some hope though. There's amazing like youth-led organizations like the Forefront Project, which um, when I won the Jalak Prize, I donated my, my money to the Forefront Project. And um, you know, it's run by an amazing young woman called Temi Mwale. And she um, treats youth violence, not as something to be criminalized, but a public health crisis. She says this is about children's mental health. It's about conflict resolution. Um, it's about a large amount of things. It's not just about criminalizing a young generation as violence. So um, there is hope on the horizon. I don't think the police are helping though. And often the government just respond by saying, we just need to keep stopping them and searching them. We just need to keep stopping the kids and searching them on the streets, which, you know, if you, a young person in London and the police keep stopping and searching you, how much confidence do you have to go to them when you feel like your life is in danger or you've been the victim of a crime? So, Well, I, speaking about getting stopped by the police, I, I, this was a, maybe six, six months ago, I went through an orange light all the way through. It didn't turn red. I went all the way through. And the two policemen in the car, they pulled me over and gave me a ticket. What can I do? And just, uh, and I was furious and I thought of, perhaps bringing it up with whomever but it's just too much of a pain to do that but that happens systematically systematically in where in England and America certainly I don't know what the significance of an orange light is oh just driving me driving through the traffic light oh I see and it, they're telling me I drove through a red light and oh, I didn't okay. I, re I went through an orange light I found that to be unjust hmm. the way I was treated but again, I don't. That doesn't happen very often to me. It might happen more if I was black. There are a lack of British films about black people. Is it racist or is it just economics? 
in terms of the film industry, I couldn't speak to it with with any sort of level of um, expertise. Um, I can think of a handful of great um, black filmmakers who, who you could speak to. But you bring it up in the book. Oh. You bring up the fact there's a lack of British films about black people. Oh, yeah. I think I'm quoting the, da- the actor David Oyewole. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I that can't pronounce his name either. Oyewole, yes. Nigerian surname. He was really interesting in that context because that was the perspective of somebody who was trying to get a project off the ground. I think one of the most interesting things that the book has uh, brought me into contact with is lots of black people in the creative industries who speak to me about the difficulty of trying to get funding and getting their projects off the ground. Um, But the argument is probably primarily economic rather than racist. No, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, I, I'm not 100% sure what um, the, the pushback that they might, might have got from commissioners, but yeah. I mean, I think that the economic argument is... Uh, yeah, they is got, they're going to make... They have to make money. They want to make profit. Yeah, sure. Um, but, I mean, look at the success of something like my, my book. I think it sold almost close to a quarter of a million copies in the UK. It was in the bestseller list for six months. So the argument that nobody wants to hear, like... Yeah. marginalised narratives is becoming very much debunked. In fact, there are lots of comparison titles that have been published in the UK after my book in right. just in the last two years. Like, There's a thirst, there's an appetite, there's mm. an excitement at the moment, and not just from the people affected. Everybody's curious. And so I think that the, the argument that like not, these things aren't going to get make money is... Um, Red herring? Yeah, sure. I mean, and even look at some of the more... Look at the film, the African American films that have come out yeah, worldwide recently. The Academy Award winners mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Black Panther, Moonlight, mm. um, Jordan Peele films. Yeah, love those. They're packing out the cinemas. Everyone's they are. Yeah. everyone's going going mad for them, <laughs> and so um, now would be the time. I think if I was a commissioner to throw money at something like that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, these are just basically stats and things that you uh, put into the book. Uh, for example, the fact that 70% of profs are white men. Black men have double the rate of unemployment. Uh, they're twice as likely to get charged with drug possession, despite lower, lower rates of drug use. Uh, we do not live in a meritocracy. Yeah, I think you can't look at those stats and think that we do, you know. So drastic, and mm. you know, as the the years go by, those stats are getting old. Some of them are a decade old. Mm-hmm. Some of the more recent ones are at least three years old. You know, because I was writing it when I was when in twenty sixteen, right? Yeah. Uh, but I doubt if you re. I don't think if you reproduce some of the studies that things would have changed drastically. But yeah, you can't look at some of those statistics and think that we live in a meritocracy and mm. that everybody has access to, you know, equal treatment under the criminal justice system or mm. everyone has access, equal access to education and stuff. It's just, it's quite mind-blowing, really. And, you know, when I was working in an anti-racist think tank years ago, part of my job would be to, like, collate these reports that would come out from different organisations um, and sometimes from the government. And uh, after a while, I was like, Somebody really needs to knit this information together and create a uh, a timeline of somebody's life to show how that disadvantage mm. interacts with them. And, mm. and that's really what I try to do with that particular section in the book where I really go in on statistics is to really say, this is what this looks like 
as a tapestry all of these reports about like racist disadvantage this is what it looks like as a tapestry over the course of someone's life mm -hmm. well you you talk about white privilege and the fact that uh, race will almost certainly positively impact my white person's life trajectory and i probably won't even notice it it's the flip side of those statistics isn't it mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. if some well nothing's happened in other words i don't, nothing well i mean i've had challenges, all, all sorts of challenges, but I guess it's, I haven't had obstacles put in front of me that, that might otherwise have been there. Indeed, I mean, you know, the flip side of those those statistics that show drastic racial disadvantage is, you know, other people are benefiting from that. So, mm -hmm. you know, I use a, a stats from the Department of Work and Pensions that show that people with an African or Asian sounding name when applying for jobs were much less likely to be called yeah. into interview than people with white British sounding names, even though they had like similar qualifications and experience. So yeah. if people who have funny foreign sounding names are less likely to be called into interview, then it stands to reason that people with white British sounding names are more likely to and be called into interview, therefore more likely to get the job, have access to that earning, you know, that earning power, which means you can pay your rent, you can pay your mortgage, you can save. Yeah. And that's really what I mean by white privilege. It's, so people are benefiting off that drastic um, inequality. And what I don't mean is that those people also don't face their own personal struggles, whether that be for other forms of discrimination. It could be sexism, it could be homophobia, it could be class discrimination. Um, and it could be outside of discrimination. It could be, you know, challenges. It could be death in the family. It could be personal illness, mental health. Like, I guess, like... You know, white privilege is not really about saying that white people don't suffer challenges and struggles in life. Mm -hmm. It's really just to say that. Um, well, they could be a lot more. It could be a lot worse. Well, yeah, they just don't. They're not dealing with racism in particular. In fact, the racism is benefiting, benefiting their life trajectory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Racism is a prejudice plus power. Yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes when it comes to public discussions about racism there's an argument made it's rather socio-biological it says well we're tribal everybody wants to just be around their own you know people and and my argument is that this isn't about flattening the power in the conversation here you know i know that there are black people and there are people of color who are prejudiced you know like some black people don't like Asian people, you know, like... Well, I was going to say, as in fact, you look at it, gets, it's even worse than that. In, like in Africa, you've got Rwanda, for example. Like it's, that there's wicked racism within, within the, the black race. And, and I guess my argument is that, well, I can't speak specifically to Rwanda, though my understanding is that that discord was sowed by colonialism initially, uh, wasn't it? Um, I, yeah, don't know. Um, in fact, to go back to the beginning of this this interview, the top of this interviewer, I think it's a perfect example of divide and rule, actually. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But I guess, you know, when I speak about the, the British conversation, well, I grew up in London, hugely multicultural, yes, there was like, there was anti-blackness amongst Asian communities, there was prejudice, into prejudice here, there and everywhere. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, um, a lot of those people didn't have the power to affect 
the other person's like employment <laughs> or like right. they weren't their landlord you know like or yeah. their teacher or something like that and that's why i say it's prejudice plus With, power yeah there was prejudice without power which is what you're talking about and then mm. there's what because the white supremacy is what is what designates racism yeah but i would i would say that that supremacy is not necessarily only in the minds of white people it's an ideology mm. you know in the same way that capitalism is mm. and so there's plenty of people who dole out that prejudice who are not white you know mm. it's an mm. ideology first and foremost mm. i wouldn't want to be so simplistic as to say that it's literally only white people who are thinking along these mm. lines um this ideology is far bigger than that mm. you know yeah yeah well it's the the other and, and putting down the other Indeed, and yeah. and in fact, that I think there's plenty of people of colour who will exact that prejudice, even if it goes against their own community self-interest. You know, just uh, just finally, um, you talk about the embattled white quote minority under attack, losing control of uh, their heritage and culture as being a nostalgia for Britain that that never was. Um, I'm I'm just concerned because I don't think there's anything wrong with having a nostalgia for the way Britain was. I don't I don't see that as being racist unless I suppose it's what used in certain ways. Mm. Yeah, I suppose for me it's uh I mean I'm speaking specifically of uh a narrative that the far right pushes yeah. in which they try to claim that everything was fine until Immigrants turned immigrant, yeah, but right. that's not really Britain's yeah. story, is it? No, not at all. No, you know? the class structure is, is it was stifling. Indeed, you know, that existed long before the days of empire. That's that a historical perspective would we would be remiss to align ourselves with it because it's just not it's not the reality of the country's like story of itself at all. And that's really what I mean. But also, I think a, a trying to conceptualize. A monocultural like white Britain also it's not in line with Britain's empire story it's not you know Britain as a country has been very outward facing mm. for a very long time <laughs> in terms of colonialism like that is a fact alongside a concurrent story that some people try to tell which is that Britain's a pure island that shouldn't be touched it's just mm. It's strange to me that like those two stories exist at the same time and it feels like the latter story that Britain is a pure island that has, has never been touched and you know this kind of like protectionist nationalism like that's often like pushed by empire apologists I suppose it's mm. like it's like a double think really I feel like you can't uncritically like defend empire and then also be like a a purist like white nationalist because mm. if like in the name of the country there was all of this attempting to like conquer parts of the world that does mean that people from all around the world are going to be drawn to the country hundreds of years later you know and I feel like that's a uh, squaring that question is something that Britain is still trying to deal with you know mm -hmm. still very much trying to deal with um, but also you know back to sort of like the top of my answer is like I think that one thing that Britain's white nationalists 
can't answer for is the class system, you know. And uh, I, I think I even say it in the book, even if you drive all immigrants out of town, you know, people would still be poor, <laughs> you know. Yes. People would still yeah. be poor. <laughs> and there would still be like a unjust distribution of resources and opportunities. Um, it's not the whole answer <laughs> to uh, ending inequality. So, yeah. You've been going at this for how long now? Well, the book came out in English on the 1st of June 2017. We're in May 2019, so it's almost two years since I've been speaking about this book in public. And you're still as... But I don't know if you were more passionate before, but you're still, from this viewer's uh, eyes, as passionate about this as, as, as you were before, or...? Yeah, I you mean... Haven't, you haven't lost anything. Very what much. drives you? Um, I still very much believe in the message that the book uh, is putting out there. And the fact that there's still a problem, obviously. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been dumbstruck by the demand that the book has had over, all around the world. It's Yeah, how many different languages is it translated into? I think we're in six languages now. Right. French, English, German, Spanish. Polish. Spanish? Brazilian Portuguese, okay. Dutch, soon. Dutch isn't out yet, and Brazilian Portuguese isn't out yet either. I can't remember. Swedish, Swedish. It must um, be fun to look at the different covers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great. Uh, so it's endlessly interesting to me to meet people in different countries who are tackling these issues, and the issues are always so similar, you know? Mm. So similar, which sort of speaks to the scale of the the problem. It's endlessly interesting to me. Yeah. Mm. What drives me? I don't really know. I mean, now it feels kind of like my job, you know, I guess mm. it is my job to poodle around the world, <laughs> talk about structural racism, really. One thing that I do do is try not to speak about it in my private life anymore. About it? About the topics of the book in particular, mm. in my private life. I keep that for... Oh, yes. Yeah. Public work. You don't mention it to your pet rabbit then? No, I don't. We just talk about hay and... Because she really enjoys eating hay. Um, I try to keep my private life actually as non-political as possible now. Mm. Because all the, the public life is all very political, so... Just finally, you've got a pen on your arm. I do, yes. It's a tattoo. I got it in Melbourne, Australia last year, yeah. What kind of pen is that? It's a biro. It's like a ballpoint pen. And why? why? Well, writing changed my life. I like a good biro. <laughs> I was feeling spontaneous one day. Drunk? Uh, Were you drunk? I wasn't drunk, no. no. I've okay. never been tattooed drunk. <laughs> it's something that I just really wanted to do, so I just found a tattoo artist. That's great. Got it done, yeah. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. And, and being so articulate. <laughs> Thank you. I've been speaking with uh, Rennie Edo-Lodge, who is the author of Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. That's published by Bloomsbury. Uh, and what about in the States, is it? It's uh, Bloomsbury in the States Bloomsbury as well, States. yeah, and in Canada. Okay, that's easy. It's also in French here, um, published by the publisher L'Editions Entremont. And that's Quebec or French publisher? Uh, it's French publisher. Um, uh, but the title is different in fr French. It's uh, it's called Racism is a White Problem in French, but I don't know what the direct translation is for that. So someone's got to look it up. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you.